Hi, I'm Logan Medish, your host of the High Caliber History Podcast, and today I'm here at the Lewis and Grant Auctions in Newport, Kentucky, and I have the honor of having with me Jack Lewis, and Jack Lewis is one of the foremost firearms experts, uh, period. Uh, let's just say that. Jack has spent his life studying antique arms. Uh, he is a second generation in this business. His son is third generation. Uh, and I, I think it's no exaggeration to say that Jack has probably forgotten more information than I will ever know in my lifetime. Uh, so it is an absolute pleasure. Jack, thank you for taking some time to come on the show today. You're most welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you. So if you're second generation, obviously that means your dad started in the arms industry. How did he get started? My father started, he got involved with the Ohio gun collectors. He was the executive chef at the Arms Hotel in the early 50s, about 51, 52 to be exact, and the Ohio gun collectors would hold their monthly meetings there. And um, so he, being interested in firearms, got interested and joined the Ohio gun collectors, and he's been a collector and a dealer ever since. Um, in 1959, he opened up Jack's Gun Store in Norwood, and he maintained that until 1983 when he sold that, and then he started another company called Fort Shawnee. And it basically was a, um, uh, a gun shop, and he had his repair uh, shop, his gunsmithing stuff set up there, and uh, he was there from 1983 to this day. He's 91 years old, and if you were to stop up there near Portsmouth and uh, knock on the door, you would find him across the street in his gun shop working. How about that? Well, gunsmithing keeps you young, I guess, right? It, it does. It <laughs> does. Keeps him working. There you yeah. go. So then how did you get into it? Was it just kind of an osmosis? As a uh, kid, uh, my father collected Winchesters. Okay. And uh, by uh, 1968, he had close to almost 400 levers. Wow. And uh, in 1968, when the Gun Control Act was being considered and it eventually passed, there was an extra bill in there that would have taxed a collector based on the size and value of their collection. Really? He panicked. He sold his guns and the, the actually the bill went down to the midnight hour. It came very close to passing. No. And it's just another angle. And um, you know, if you think about it and if you do collect firearms and you have a sizable collection, mm -hmm. it can dip into your pockets on a yearly basis. So Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then how did how did you get started? I always loved the Winchesters. I was charged with the task of making sure none of them got rusted and I'd take them off the wall and I had a cloth that I had to wipe the blue with and mm -hmm. uh, then a wax to put on the wood. But uh, um, I never had forgotten that. And when I came home from Vietnam, I was married. We uh, had two children and um, I needed some employment to work. And so I was doing two things. I worked for the city of Cincinnati and then I worked in my father's gun shop in the evenings and traveled to gun shows. And uh, it not only helped me with my family, it also helped me build an extensive collection of Springfield arms. Okay. And uh, which is something that that's my love is from 1795 to 1900, so. Okay. 
Very cool. So then when did you turn this into a full-time profession for you? Well, I retired from the city in um, 2000. And uh, Kathy and I traveled around to gun shows for about five or six years. And then I started writing descriptions and evaluating arms for another auction company. Okay. And uh, last year, Bill and I came together and uh, we started our own auction company. Lewis and Grant Auctions. So. Yeah, that's great. So what has changed the most, do you think, in the collecting world from when you started to where we're at now? Well, when I started a uh, Texas Patterson Colt was, or a Walker Colt or a Winchester one of a thousand, which they still are the blue chips of collecting, mm -hmm. Younger people have turned to more like uh, items from World War One, World War II, prototype military rifles, um, all the different handguns, and uh, that seems to be the more popular thing today. And it's affordable, it's something someone can seek out the best of and step up to the plate and uh, pay the price and walk away with a good piece. And, um, you know, interests have changed. There was an old collector named Jonathan Peck that was from Hartford, Connecticut, and he'd always teased that the collecting of firearms was trendy. Okay. <laughs> so where do you see things going in the future? Oh, good Lord. Uh, <laughs> Look back to the gyro jets, maybe, you know. <laughs> and, and that's not a joke because I know of a, uh, a person that owns a uh, development company and uh, develops arms for the United States military. And we, we were teasing about that because they still are pursuing that, that theory to see how they can make it work. Really? You know, and, uh, but, you know, today it's, uh, it's more high tech. Uh, it's much lighter weight, and what's really, I'm a Vietnam veteran, and about two years ago, I had the opportunity to test fire the Army's new LMG, light machine gun, mm -hmm. which replaces the M60. Well, until you've carried an M60 in the rice paddies of Vietnam, and you've had belts around your neck, and you can feel how it weighs you down in the mud, this new LMG was unbelievable gun. Uh -huh. Then I also had the pleasure of test firing the Army's new sniping rifle that is issued to a sharpshooter in each platoon of infantry. And the particular gun, what I did was I basically, at 100 yards, I had a six o'clock hold on it because it had a scope on it of which I didn't set for my eye. Most mm -hmm. people have to understand, scope has to be set for your eye. Right. It, you know, if, if it's set for you, it's gonna be a little different when I go to shoot it and it's gonna spray a little different on the target. Mm -hmm. So basically, I asked the guy and he told me, and I said, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna hold six o'clock, at the bottom of the black, and I said, I'll just shoot for group. And um, to my astonishment, at 100 yards, I had 10 shots that you could cover with a half dollar. No. And the most amazing thing was I did it in about 25 seconds. Wow. I mean, you were right back on it because the gun itself takes all the recoil out uh -huh. and it was suppressed so you don't hear the noise as much right. and you just fall right back in the groove. That's very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So you said you collect early American stuff, mm -hmm. uh, 1795 on. You, know, you, you could pick anything, right? You could right. pick early American, you could pick Civil War, you could pick Winchesters, Colts. What <laughs> made you choose early American? 
The Springfields is quite a uh, challenge in the sense of doing research. You have to read not only textbooks, there's some great textbooks out there. You really got to get involved in ordinance notes. Okay. And you need to read the ordinance notes. Not so much about the experimentation of the weapon, how many were made, how many were made each year, mm -hmm. and the different variations that applied to uh, the use and the changes they made is what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yeah. So when you go from type one to type two, exactly type stuff like that. Exactly. Okay. So so is there is there a, a Grail gun of sorts in that in that early era? I had one in my collection. It's now uh, part of the collection at Fort Belvoir. Virginia uh, in the Army's Museum. It was a 1795 with the brazed bayonet. That is the one of a thousand, the Walker Colt of the 1795 Springfields. Okay. And then second to that would be a good early dated 1799 where the eagle points toward the butt and uh, the lock plate will not be dated, but the top of the butt plate, it's dated 1799. Okay, so, so those, are, those are the- Those are two of the, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. And you've had both. I've had both. Wow. Yeah. Where do you go from there, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I've settled on uh, the uh, trapdoors and uh, mostly the officer's models, the sporting rifles. Uh, sporting rifles is something where an officer would write Springfield and say, I want a 45 caliber rifle. I want it to have a 26 inch barrel. Mm -hmm. I want it fine sighted. So fine sighted in those days would be a tang sight, a front folding beach. And uh, then whatever he wanted, if he wanted it checkered, if he wanted the lock plate engraved, or if he wanted a, a special uh, medcalf attachment mm -hmm. to carry a cartridge block, they would do that. And uh, so by 1875, Springfield was bombarded by these officers riding in and f requesting these arms they made a standard officer's rifle. Okay. But even after 1875, from 1875 to about 1882, there were a few special uh, orders that were granted. There was an officer's rifle um, where the guy wanted a marksman-type stock, had a fatter pistol grip. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was, it was built and sent to the officer, so. Cool. So, yeah, so with so much officer specificity in mm -hmm. the orders, that, that really makes for a wide collecting field of, of stuff. It's almost a, almost like an unending search, right? Absolutely, that's absolutely. Cool. And that's, really, that's what the collecting's all about. It's, it's the fun of the hunt, you know? Sure. And that's, you know, th this is my last gun. Mm -hmm. Until the next one, until the next one, you know? It's, it's more expensive than drugs, I think. To <laughs> there were 477 officers' rifles made, 317 by name okay. that ordered them. And uh, there's probably, within those 477, there's about three major variations. Okay. And, uh, and it's basically sights and the wrist that's pretty much it, but they were all 4570s. The earliest ones is flat in the back where uh, the later ones are rounded uh, at the breech. Okay. Yeah, the barrel, and uh, the, the, what is it called, the uh, pinion or in the back. But um, anyway, okay. it's, it's, it's fun, it's interesting, and I think the research and the reading on the pieces is what keeps you running. Sure. 
Absolutely. Yeah, because there's always new material coming out. You know, Absolutely. Just, just when you think someone has put out the seminal work on something, more paperwork comes up and, and gets discovered. And, you bet. You know, yeah. and that's, mm -hmm. that's the beauty of it is that it's always evolving. Yeah. So. Now, you've spent some time with Antiques Roadshow, right? Um, not Antique Roadshow. I did uh, a collectible show for Discovery Channel, oh, okay. which was like... The Antique Road Show. Um, it was a uh, show where they would bring pieces in, and uh, we would basically look to piece over and uh, uh, appraise it for them. Okay. I did. I forgot nine episodes. I think. Yeah. Okay. And I imagine trying to do something like that for TV in front of the cameras is is quite quite different than than the normal it, back and it, forth. It has its advantages because it, it to to someone that's not very well known or hasn't traveled the circuit of the gun shows and know a lot of people. It's a way to get your image out, mm -hmm. and uh, basically, most people don't realize that when you're on the road show, you pay all expenses. Nothing's paid for by them, and that's not a paycheck. Ah, well, I learned something new today. Yeah. <laughs> so you basically do it for the notoriety. Gotcha. Get your get your face before the camera if you're lucky enough to get a good piece that'll go before the camera. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it's interesting because I've seen lots of things pop up on there that. I'd just roll my eyes. My wife would look at me and say, is it worth that much? And I'd just roll my eyes and say, find a buyer. Right. You know? Yeah. Something's it's, only worth what someone's going to pay for it. I do like how they will show the value of it 10 years ago versus the value of today because yeah. market has changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what's cool. Um, one of the things they do, because I follow them on Instagram and in their stories, when they're getting ready to do one of those retro episodes where they're showing the price changes, mm -hmm. they'll have a poll in there and you can you can vote. You'll be like, oh, do you think it's up? Do you think it's the same? Do you think it's down? And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I'll do the polls and then I'll watch that night and you know see yeah. how close I got good point you know, yeah which is kind of cool to yeah. have that involvement to keep you on the ball with changing trends in to the market. really stay up on the appraisal prices today you you've got a good advantage with the computer and being able to with the search engines of searching what pieces bring at auctions mm -hmm. and not necessarily does it mean that this piece that sold for a lot of money the next one out's gonna do it right no, so you never know. Yeah, yeah, it just depends. You know, you get that one piece. If you've got two guys that, mm -hmm. you know, get into a pissing contest and got to have it, right? Got to have it, you yeah. You know, yeah. That's right. So if someone were a new collector and they were going to start collecting today, mm -hmm. what would be your biggest piece of advice to them? Uh, the, the biggest advice to them today would be to understand and learn conditions. Okay. And learning conditions came to me very early on because I watched my father in this shop. I knew what it took to refinish a gun. I knew what it took to blue a gun mm -hmm. and then to recondition a stock and so on like that. And it's very difficult for a restorer to make it look like the factory made it look then. Mm -hmm. And training your eye for that. You know, that's, that is all part of it. And then 
to go along with that is reading the textbooks, mm -hmm. knowing what you're looking at, knowing what you're going to be buying. Sure. And, um, and a lot of times it's not so much what the piece is worth, it's the value of it to you in that empty space you have in your collection. Right. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people today don't understand that when you uh, are walking through a show, sometimes you can be looking at the piece and you might never see that gun again for 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So what is its value at that time? Do you want to take that 30-year search out, all of that gas in your car and staying at hotels to try to find that piece? Right. Take all of that into the equation. But sure. know what you're looking at really well, and uh, you'll do okay. You'll okay. do fine. Yeah. Is there anything in particular, you know, pitfalls that, that folks should really look out for, you know? Only in really valuable things, uh, the old saying that if it's too good to be true, then it's not. And uh, it's kind of like I was jogging one day and my barber knew that I was really big in guns and I would jog by his shop and he had a person in there that thought they had a real Walker Colt. Okay. So they stopped me and I went in and the guy said he would bring it the next day. And I told him then, I said, you know, it's probably too good to be true. Right. And he brought it in and it was. it was. It was a reproduction that someone had thrown in the horse manure pile and aged the hell out of it and then uh, brought it back out to try to pass it on for a real piece, you know. Uh. And it's just, again, it's knowing the piece that you're after. Mm -hmm. Knowing conditions is the two major things in collecting. And, but it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of rewarding. Uh, or rewards and th the thing is it's it's the stuff that you go after um, I'll never forget one day I had a person bring me a Bowie knife okay and I asked the guy real quick I said what possessed you to put down $50 for this Bowie knife he was at a yard sale not very far from this building and he said it was the prettiest hunting knife I ever saw the knife got him $16,000. It was a great Wade and Butcher Bowie knife, and wow. it was in fantastic condition. Wow. So things like that can happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you never know. But it's always best to have it checked out by an expert and then go from there. Right. By the gun, not the story. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Now, you had kind of essentially retired before the Lewis and Grant thing came along. So what... Very true. Very what, true. What is What was so special about this new partnership that made you say, you know what, I've done this my whole life, I retired, I'm coming out of retirement because i got to be a part of this? Well, mainly because of my son. Okay. Billy became unemployed and... Uh, and uh, another person that works for us here that's a very fine gentleman and a uh, very good person. Uh, I wanted to see them be successful, so why not pass this on to two people that, and Grant Wendling that can carry this into the next millennium, mm -hmm. and uh, they can do this. And uh, we're all working together now, it's fun, and um, we do our research daily. You've been here for a few days. You've seen us in action, and oh, yeah. you saw how the fun we do have, yep. and we enjoy it. So it's not a job, right. and there's no pressure on us. And uh, you know we're going to be fine, and we'll do good. And oh, uh, yeah. 
you know, people's going to come because they know me right. and they're going to get the same trustworthy uh, that they've always gotten. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, you're only as good as your work. And my father always said that. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned you're doing this for your son and for mm -hmm. these other couple gentlemen. That's, you know, obviously your son is family, but these mm -hmm. other couple gentlemen, you know, it's, it's one thing that I've found in the gun collecting community is that we are one big family. We are. You know. We share knowledge. We yes. pass it on. And uh, that's the uh, camaraderie of it. And it's, uh, you know, like if I'm walking through a show and I'll see uh, uh, a silver mounted dagger that I think uh, a buddy of mine, Mike Zomber, might like, I'm going to tell him where it's at and he'll go over and next thing you know, hey, Jack. I owe you a steak. You know? <laughs> there you go. Same way with me. Michael uh, did one for me one day. And uh, what he did was he sent me an email at home and he said, what is this monster? Well, this monster was a Springfield breech loading shotgun, trapdoor shotgun. And on the lock plate, it was engraved like an officer's rifle. And in a banner, it had the initials FRB. Well, okay. in 1874, Freeman R. Bull ordered a Springfield sporting shotgun. There was only one, and that was it. And it's a unique gun. He found this in a decorative arts internet sale, immediately brought it to my attention because he knew I liked those particular things. Uh -huh. And uh, it was a great find. And uh, there's an article going to be about the gun in Man at Arms in oh. uh, the April-May issue. Oh, very cool. So, yeah, the internet has really changed the whole dynamic of, of how the auction business works, hasn't it? Yeah, the search engines really cut a search down very mm -hmm. quick. And there are those that across this uh, great country of ours will do a search every morning on particular things. And boy, if it pops up, then they launch on it. Yeah. So yeah, it cuts down the travel, cuts down the hotel expenses. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, like you say, so yeah, it cuts down on your travel expenses, but it's also a big boom for the auction house because they're able to reach people that, you know, otherwise wouldn't be able to travel to the facility and, and come to the auction, you know, so you can get people literally all over the world. Yeah, we stuff. did a sale last May and I was very skeptical because I'm old school and I'm not up on the, I, I am up on the use of the computers, but the power of it is still not unplugged. Mm -hmm. So normally if we do, we did an auction and uh, the low estimate would be 1.4 and the high estimate would be 1.8. If we achieved in between there, I was always happy and smiling. I did my thing and I mm -hmm. did it right. This particular sale had a new tool called Zoom. Okay. And the thing was, it, it went through the roof. It went above the high estimate. And is it because people were sitting at home right. and they couldn't get out? Is it because you know this new tool made it available to a lot of people? Who knows? But it worked. And it was a winner that day. And it's a winner for everyone going sure. forward. So Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this upcoming sale that you guys have in, mm -hmm. in May of this year, um, obviously, there's, there's some fantastic Winchesters and stuff in here. Tell us a little bit about this big collection that's coming up in May. The very uh, the, the best thing in this collection is that there are seven world-class guns that 
just for the condition are very are tops and just hard to beat. Mm -hmm. um, the this particular piece is a rosewood cased Nimsky engraved 1866 rifle that was built for the King of Spain to present to his ambassador to America and Mexico, Germio Crespo. The gun is absolutely brand new. Wow. It's it's phenomenal condition. And next to it is a 73 Winchester that is nickel and gold and engraved. And it was built for the, um, uh, oh gosh, what is it? The Connecticut State Foot Guard. And uh, it was presented to them. And I understand at that presentation in 1881, there was like, I, I don't know how many, but there were several mm -hmm. Civil War generals that were very famous that were in the audience when this gun was presented to the Connecticut Foot Guard. Oh, wow. Um, then you also have on the table here, you have a Briggs Patton Henry rifle that was actually given to the Briggs family by Oliver Winchester. That's a big deal. Second, we have a gilt engraved Henry rifle with blue finish and a gilt gun is very seldom found with a lot of blue on it. There's some of the silver plated guns out there that are phenomenal condition, condition but the gilt and blue is a rare commodity and uh, very seldom has one come up for sale. In fact, one person told me he's never seen one. Oh, the wow. only one he's seen was the Lincoln Henry that's at the Smithsonian. Yeah. That's gilt and blue. Hmm. And then you have a deep reliefed engraved 66 carbine here that was built for the Sultan of Turkey. Next to that is an engraved 66 rifle that is just phenomenal condition. Next to that's a 76 deluxe that features Gilt on the frame, $7.50 worth of engraving, and blued finish on the barrel magazine tube, and an octagon to round full mag. Very unusual. Hmm. Next to that is a 97 shotgun with extra barrel that's blued and gilt. Then you have a number 186 engraved golden laid Winchester. This particular gun was built by Winchester in January of 1897, and it is the model gun for the highly finished arms catalog that was presented in 1897. Next to that, you have a number one engraved gold and platinum inlaid 94 that was made in 1897. It is an antique. Next to that is a 401 self-loader that was built for Prince George, who later became King George. Oh, wow. Down below that is a number 195 Winchester that's gold and platinum engraved. And then this particular sale has got quite a few 22s that are engraved, gold inlaid, and that, and all the way down to the little boys rifles that are just bolt action 22s and in phenomenal condition. Mm -hmm. Then the auction turns to basically 1795 up through the Craig rifle. And then there is a great collection. Probably, I've been told, we will probably have the best armor and 
um, rapiers for sale in this auction that has happened in well over 80 to 100 years. Wow, truly a once in a lifetime opportunity. You bet, there's some unbelievable rapiers out there. They're wow. some great pieces. So the sale is really uh, got a lot of good things in it and should bring a lot of people and interest a lot of different collectors. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's stuff here, you know, aside from the armor being a once in a lifetime thing, you know, there's, there's stuff that people have only seen in museums. And, you know, I, I go back to the Sultan of Turkey piece mm -hmm. here and, you know, the, uh, the companion piece to that gun, if you will, you know, is in the Metropolitan Museum, you know, yeah, so we Sultan of Turkey Dragoon. Yeah, so yeah. We, we have true museum class guns here. These two here are world class guns. They are the best for condition, for engraved that anyone can see. They've always been, these two have always been iconic pieces. Uh, the leather case 73 was in the collection of Richard Prosser Mellon. The uh, Rosewood case 66 was in the collection of Clay Bedford, who was world renowned for his collecting of European arms and armor. And he was also the civil engineer that helped build Hoover Dam. Wow. Very cool. A lot yeah. of esteemed collectors through the ages mm -hmm. sitting here in, in this upcoming sale. Absolutely. Awesome. And uh, one man was responsible for putting this collection together for a family. And it took over 40 some years. He put together quite a group of lever actions for him. Wow. So. Fantastic. And now the collecting community gets to enjoy it all over again. Get to enjoy it all over again. Yeah, <laughs> and bet. that's what it's all about, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the May sale does. I, I know it's going to do great. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, you guys have a fantastic operation here mm -hmm. and your, your stuff is, is second to none. And um, you, you guys have been fantastic to me and I'm, I'm really enjoying working with you. Um, and so I, I, I see nothing but fantastic stuff uh, in y'all's future. It's just, uh, there, there's nowhere to go but up, right? You That's know? right. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Awesome. Well, Jack Lewis, thank you so much for coming out of the High Caliber History Podcast. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to join us here. My pleasure.